least. Uh, we do have a homework assignment that's due today, the homework three, which was the five questions on the planets. Homework two is graded and grades will be, grades are up on D2L. I'll have those back for you. I'm going through the labs right now. I'll have those labs for you as well and that'll get us pretty much caught back up with grading. Uh, also coming up, second solar observation due on Wednesday. So at least one more. If you've got more than that, that's great. Um, I'll take at least one more of those and give you the five points credit for that and take a look at it and make sure you're on the right track. Quiz three is going to be available this weekend. I didn't realize it had, had, I had previously had it on the old schedule, so it was actually available this past weekend. A couple of you took it, which is fine. Uh, but it was not required. I've since changed the dates, so you can't take it again. It won't be available again until uh, October the 3rd. If you're one of the four people who did take it and you didn't do as well as you like because I haven't covered all the material, you're welcome to let me know and I can delete your attempt and let you take it again. Yeah, I was a little but but just give, send me an email or something so I see it. Don't, don't, if you tell me now, I'll forget about it afterwards. But if you do, do you want me to reset it, I can delete it. Now the thing is, if you delete it, it's gone. So you don't get your higher of the two scores, you get whatever score you retake it with. So just again, if you want that, just send me an email or something. That way I know it, I'll see it, and I'll immediately change it at the time. Yes, sir? Um, for the solar observation? Yeah. Oh, it's super impressive. But I try to measure it on, I think it was either Tuesday or Thursday. Mm -hmm. It was very cloudy. It was like no shadow. Yeah. Is that no good? Or no, don't bother. Get something where you can get a shadow. So hopefully... Hopefully today's good, so it's looking, looking promising now. What it's going to do later this afternoon, I don't know, but you've got to at least get some shadow on it. So yeah, if, so quiz three, if you're one of those people, go ahead and send me an email if you want it reset. If not, you can keep your score and I'll let you keep whatever, whatever you've got. Uh, exam two is going to be on Monday, the 6th, and that will cover chapters three, four through eight, and nine. And we're pretty well there. We started on nine last time. We'll finish up nine uh, this coming We'll finish up nine this coming week, so we'll be done with it in plenty of time, and that will be available. That, will, that one we'll take uh, next Monday, so we'll be set with that there. And then I'll have a homework four for you. I don't have it. It's up on, it's up on D2L if you really want it, if you want to jump ahead, but I'll actually have that for you coming up uh, probably either next time, probably next time for you. So we'll have chat questions on the sun and then the stars that we'll be starting on next. So any questions on anything else up there? No, no, no. All right. Picture of the day for today, then, um, is actually from Mars. So this is from the Curiosity rover, which we had a question about last time. I believe that was Nicole, correct? You asked me about, or was that last time, or I mean, it was last week. You said something about, you know, when is Mars going to finally get to this thing? It's actually there. <laughs> it did just get there. I just saw some news reports from, like, Friday that said it's now arrived and it's actually taking its first samples of the foothills of the mountain. So it has actually gotten there. Well, Just it only, it only took it a year and a half, and actually two years from the time it landed on Mars. It's, la it's been on Mars now a little over one Martian year, which is about twice as long as our year, one of our years, because Mars, being further away, takes a little longer to orbit. So it is there now. It's exploring the foothills and going to work its way through there. This is an image that it took from those foothills of an interesting a couple interesting rock formations. There's one in here in the little inset with this rock with kind of an interesting, like almost a star pattern in it where it's formed. The other one is actually a very round, smooth uh, rock. I mean, it looks like a little ball there. Uh, it's, about, it's about an inch across. 
So it's not, not gigantic, it's not a big thing, but it's about an inch across. Uh, one of the other rovers found some similar ones that were much smaller. Uh, what do they call them? Blueberry size, I think. So, you know, little tiny ones compared to this. But they're nice, they're nice and round. Where do you get something that's nice and round like this? Well, the most common way, one of the common ways we get them here on Earth is from flowing water. Right? Water will smooth out, uh, smooth out rocks, wear them down, and give you something smooth. So if they're tumbling through the water, you can actually get round objects like that. So it may be a piece of evidence, you know, barring further, waiting for further analysis, that you know, maybe this was actually formed in liquid water on Mars at some point in the distant past. So we think, we know that there's evidence that Mars did have liquid water in the past, and here's just another piece that could have been that. There are other ways you can form you know, nicely spherical objects like this, a volcanic eruption that spews out droplets in the, of, of lava. They could solidify if they're still in the atmosphere. They're going to become up nice and smooth, and then they'll come up little uh, solid little round do droplets as well. So there's a number of different things that could have formed it. You know, where did it form from and come from? Was it dug up in the impacts? You know, how did it get out to just sitting there now? Just something that uh, the rover happened to find. And it's going to study a little more of this over the coming months as it begins to explore uh, Mount Sharp, which is the central mountain in uh, the Gale Crater, which is where the rover landed. They planned it landed in this crater specifically to really be able to study what, the, what it was like inside this crater and look for this specifically for this mountain, hoping that they can find some evidence, uh, more evidence of water and perhaps some kind of life uh, looking, closer, looking closer to Mars and uh, in this specific region they wanted to look at. So no signs of life yet, but lots of signs that the conditions are right. The conditions were right, at least in the distant past, for Mars to have single-celled you know, microbial life. Yes, sir? Probably not. We don't see any evidence of any kind of Martian life that would be that complicated. If there is any evidence of Martian life, it would be something that is, you know, single-celled. So something you need a microscope really to be able to, to detect or detect fossils. It does kind of look like perhaps something, you know, looks like a little starfish or something there. But you have to, have to remember that our mind tends to put images where they aren't. If you've seen pictures of what was it, the Mars rat or something, you know, you get this interesting pattern, your mind says, oh, you know, that somebody sees it looks like something, and once one person says it, then yeah, I kind of see the rat, and it, it sort of builds on it. But your mind, to what is really just randomness, your mind tries to put some kind of order to it. You want, you want to see something there, it can't just be random, your mind wants to relate it to something that it sees. So, not going to be a fossil because we've seen no evidence of any, if there were, if there were that kind of creatures there, we would have detected it with our stuff we've sent up so far. We would have been able to do that. The only thing that could be left on Mars is some kind of real small life. Yes, sir? Um, what, is the climate like on Mars? what is the climate like on Mars? Right now, very dry. There is no liquid water. There is water below the surface. There can be like a permafrost frozen below the surface. The pressure on Mars is about 1 one-hundredth of the Earth's atmosphere, meaning that if you, you couldn't have liquid water, it would boil away instantaneously. If you tried to put, if you took a cup of water there see, and took, opened it up, it would just boil into a vapor because the pressure is not sufficient to hold a liquid water. So temperatures can be good. You can get up to 60 and 70 degrees on Mars near the equator at the, in summer. 
but the pressure is insufficient to be able to hold that into, into, water, into liquid water. You can have solid ice, you can have a vapor, but you can't have anything in between. Now, billions of years ago, Mars had a thicker atmosphere and you could have. And we see evidence of you know, riverbeds and water flows and things that did exist on Mars in the past. Good. Anything else? Before we go back to the sun where it's even a little bit warmer? All right. Let's go take a look at the sun then. We were right about here. I think I flipped this one up and then said I'll wait till next time to talk about this one. Um, how do we learn about the sun? We can, see, we can see the sun, we can see the surface, we can study the surface. It's kind of similar to the earth. We can't study the interior of the earth directly. But we do know a lot of the physics behind it. We do have a big understanding of the physics. So we can make a mathematical model to explain how all of these particles work. And one of the things that we know has to occur is that the sun has to be in equilibrium. It has to be in a, bal in a balance between gravity pulling it down and some internal force, some internal pressure pushing outwards. We know that's due to all those nuclear reactions at the core. How many nuclear weapons did we say? Billions of nuclear weapons going off every single second? Well, if that happened here, what would that, that would tear things apart. Why does not not tear the sun apart? Because gravity is pulling down with exactly the same amount of force. So the immense gravity is exactly balanced by the amount of force trying to explode the sun apart from the inside is being pulled down by gravity trying to push it down. Yes, ma'am? Okay, now this might be a stupid question. Oh. Um, or because it's been so many years since I've really been in school. Mm -hmm. What exactly causes gravity? What causes gravity? Uh, under Einstein it would be mass. Just matter have, has the property of bending space and that's what we feel is gravity. Newton saw it differently as a force between objects that they had, still it had to do with mass. So anything with mass has some sort of gravitational force. The more mass, the stronger the gravity. The sun's got a lot of mass compared to us. So real intense gravity pushing it down, trying to collapse the sun down to a black hole, down to nothing, I mean, push all that mass down to nothing. All those nuclear, essentially, that, all that energy being created at the center, again, millions of nuclear warheads every single second going off, is trying to explode the sun apart. They're exactly balanced. You know, sort of the way we're exactly balanced. If we if we're, sit on a chair, right? We're sitting on the chair. We're nicely balanced. We push down on it. You know, we have a weight pushing down on it. Chair pushes back up on us with the same amount of force. We stay balanced. If we start putting, you know, people standing on the chair and you get two or three or four or ten people, you know, trying to stand on the chair at one time, eventually you'll reach that limit where it would collapse. So if you tried to put more and more mass to the sun, you could, you could change this. But the sun is in this very perfect balance between pressure and gravity, has been so for five billion years, and will remain so for about five billion more. I mean, it's amazing that it can balance itself so perfectly all the time that it gives us exactly the same amount of energy, plus or minus a little bit. There's some slight variations, but nothing significant. And we know that because we'd see those changes here on Earth. If it changed significantly, if the sun got a lot hotter or a, lot, or a little bit hotter or a little bit cooler, it would really change to the point of boiling away oceans or freezing the oceans completely. Because very small changes in the temperature make a very big change in the amount of energy. Now the next slide, oh go ahead, yeah. 
wouldn't the sunspots point out that there is something changing with the sun? The sunspot, there, there is change, yes, there is changing on the surface, but the overall energy, the overall balance isn't changing. There's little changes on the surface, and we'll go over sunspots probably later today. I'll particularly start talking about them. Okay, the next slide you don't have to copy down. I'm just going to show you the equations. You don't need to know them, but these are actually the equations that are used. Again, don't worry about it. Yuck, right? But these equations are actually allow an astronomer to solve for the conditions all throughout a star. They look at the pressure as you go from very inside, how the pressure changes as, to, as you go from in to out, how the mass changes, how the temperature changes, and how the luminosity changes. So again, you don't have to try to solve all, we're not going to try to solve all those, I just wanted you to see them briefly, which is what you actually have to solve. They're all interrelated so that things like you know, temperature, are he temperature is here, but you, this is related to temperature, so you can't just solve them one at a time. Uh, mass and den there's densities here which have to do with the mass which come in this equation. So they're all mixed up together. So you can't just solve one of them, you have to solve all of them. There's luminosity, there's luminosity, how bright the stars. So they're all interdependent on each other and you have to solve all four of these uh, equations, uh, differential equations, if you've taken any kind of calculus, but don't worry, don't worry about that, uh, to solve them simultaneously to find out what the, what's going on in the sun. And if we do that, we can figure out what the pressure is at every point from the interior of the sun out to the surface. We can find out what the mass, the total mass of the sun is. We can find the temperature and we can find the luminosity given certain assumptions about the interior of the sun and what it's like there. We can't see the interior. Okay? I can't go look down. I can tell you the temperature of the sun at the center is about 15 million degrees. This is how we figure it out. We can't go put a thermometer deep down in the sun and measure it. We can't see deep down in the sun and make any kinds of measurements. I can only see the surface. But we can assume that the sun is 10 million, 12 million, 15 million degrees, solve all these equations and find out do we get the right numbers at the surface? Do we get the right answers that we can observe? Do we predict that the sun will be putting out as much energy as it does? If it doesn't print out enough, maybe we've got to change those, tweak those numbers. Maybe it's not 15 million, maybe it's 14 million. Maybe it's 16 million. And you can adjust those numbers, you know, what is it like inside? You can adjust it to make everything, to get you the right answers that we observe on the surface. You have to be able to get, you know, the correct brightness, the correct temperature, the correct amount of mass. You have to be able to get all of that when you come, when you get out to the surface. That's what we can see. I can't see what the center looks like. But once I figure out that it comes to the surface and I get the right answers, then I can work backwards and say, well, now I know what the interior is like. In order for all these equations to work, I know what the interior now must be like and how the temperature must change and what the central temperature, what the, the temperature must be at the center. So again, I just put them up there. You don't need to be able to solve them. You don't even, they won't see anything like it on the exam. You won't even see any mention of it actually on the exam. I just like you to actually have seen those equations. But we can use those to really learn about the interior. How else can we find out about the interior? We can look at how the sun vibrates. Uh, we can look at little Doppler shifts on the sun. And you see the sun over here in red and blue. There's some parts of the sun. The sun is kind of like oscillating in very complex patterns. So you get some places that are red shifted, moving away from us. We get some sections that are blue shifted, coming towards us. 
and we can use that pattern to work backwards and find out, okay, if this is what we're seeing, again, it all comes back to what we see on the surface and how, what must be going on inside, even though we can't see it, to explain what we see on the surface. So we can use these different kinds of patterns as we get things moving towards and away. And the sun oscillates with very complex patterns, not just the whole sun, you know, parts going out, parts going in. It's little bits and pieces, and that very complex pattern tells us, you know, what's going on deeper inside the sun. What's going on deeper inside the sun? We use similar things here on Earth. Earth doesn't oscillate like this, right? You know, Pennsylvania's not moving in and out, but we do see earthquakes. Earthquake waves travel through the interior of the Earth and that gives us sort of a view inside. We can see then what the Earth is like. If this were the Earth, you know, we drill down to this very thickest, very thinnest, outest, outer layer. We don't get through that. We're at the very, very edge of this. But we can use earthquake waves which travel through it, seismic waves, to determine what the Earth must be like inside. Similarly, we can look at the vibrations of the Sun to figure out a little bit more about what the Sun must be like inside. Because all we can use, the only thing we can observe is the surface directly. That's all we can actually see. So if we solve those equations, those yucky, nice yucky equations that I showed you, we can learn things about the temperature, the density of the sun as we go from the central core out to the edge. And as we do, we find that the, temper, the, the density how dense the material is, how tightly packed the material is, it's extremely dense when you get into the center. That's where all the material of the sun is. No matter how big the sun is, how large it appears, the vast majority of the mass is all condensed down into the core. So there's lots of material out here, many, many Earths, but much less than you have in the core. And the density here would be, uh, what is that, 10 to the, that would be 160 times the density of the sun. Density of the sun. Density of water. It is the sun. About 160 times the density of water. So that's denser than you know, metals that we have. Different metals might have densities that are 5 and 10 and 15 times denser than water. The center of the sun, the core, all that hydrogen is pushed so close together that it's 150 times, 150, 160 times denser than water. So extremely dense, each little tiny particle there has much more mass than we're really used to thinking about here on Earth. As you leave the center of the sun, that drops very quickly. It goes from being really high and as you're getting out into the radiation zone here, by the time you get to the edge of the radiation zone, which is where, right about here, you're down to almost no density. Very, very low. All that material is packed into the core. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of material there, but nowhere near as dense. So this is 40. By the time you're getting out here, you know, you're getting down to density of rock, density of water. You know, eventually, by the time you're getting out further out to the photosphere, you just have gas densities. And that's why the overall density of the sun is very low, but deep down here in the core, it's incredible. For us, for now. Eventually, we're going to look at objects that make that look like no density. So you can actually pack material even closer together than that. Temperature, the second graph there is temperature. If we do those calculations, use those equations that I showed, that's about 15 million degrees. That's where it peaks at the center. Again, it's very hot there at the center, but as you get further and further away, 
get to the edge of the radiation zone, you've gone from 15 million degrees down to maybe 2 million or so. And it continues to drop. By the time you get out to the edge of the sun that we see, it's down to zero on this scale. Well, compared to 15 million degrees, what's 6,000, right? It's essentially zero. If you're doing it to a scale that you can see 15 million degrees, you're not going to be able to see 6,000. Still hot for us, but it's dropped tremendously from where it was at the center. That's where all the energy production is going on, only in this very central core, only where the temperature is over about 10 million degrees. If you're under 10 million degrees, the nuclear reactions that we'll talk about probably on Wednesday, I won't get that far today, can't occur. It's not hot enough. You need these incredible densities, lots and lots of particles smooshed very close together, and you need these temperatures that are very high in order to produce the energy that the sun does. And that all goes on deep down at the core here. How do we get the energy out? We looked at this briefly last time. We have all the energy being produced here at the core. It travels by radiation first. So particles, can, uh, the radiation, the gamma rays, x-rays that are formed deep down in the core are able to travel outwards through a chunk of the sun. Eventually, it gets to the point where the sun gets opaque to them. Opaque meaning you can't see through it. Like opaque, the walls are opaque. We can't see visible light can't travel through the walls. Well, it gets to the point where this radiation can no longer travel through those parts of the sun. Uh, as certain atoms begin to form, they're just unable, it's unable to travel. And you'll begin to get a convective zone. And you'll get a whole bunch of convective cells here. You're heating up. You still have energy traveling from the core, heating all of this up. It heats up the base of the convective zone. That rises, right? Hot air rises, so it comes to the top here, releases energy and sinks back down. That heats up the next set of cells. They rise and they sink and then sink down. And it slowly transports the heat. Here, by the radiation moving, the actual photons, gamma rays moving through the sun, when you get further out, it's actually the whole sun itself moving. It's actually bits of material. As you get convection here, you get convection. You heat, heat the air at the bottom of the room. It rises. The whole air actually moves. Here you don't actually have the particles of the sun moving. When you get out here, you do. You're heating them up. That whole chunk of material rises up, releases its heat, and heats up the next section. You get that set of convection cells that brings the material right up to the surface where it finally is able to escape and radiate away. But that's what we mean by opaque. Opaque is not as dense. It might not be as dense, but the composition is such that it does not allow light to travel through it. You know, just as the walls. You can have a wall, you can have things that are very dense that can be opaque that you can't, cannot see through, and you can have things that could be just as dense or denser that you could see through. Right? If you get a thick piece of paper, not very dense, but you really can't see light, light doesn't travel through it. You could have a big thick piece of glass, much denser, but the light can still travel through it. So it has nothing to do with the density, it has to do with the composition and the nature of the materials that allow it to travel. And when you get up here, all of a sudden, the light that was traveling through here just fine stops. It's like it hit a nice brick wall here and it can't travel, but instead it heats up that material and allows it to rise. So that allows the, the light to eventually get out of the sun. What do we see? How do we know this is occurring? Again, all of this I've told you is going down deep down inside the sun. We can't see that. 
We can't see inside the sun directly, but we can see the evidence for it on the surface. This is a very close-up image of the surface of the sun, what we call the photosphere. And you have all these brighter areas, brighter little we'll call granules, and darker areas in between them. This is what we would expect if material were coming up here, heating material coming up. So here you have two cells, hot, hot material coming up, rising, releasing that energy at the photosphere. So it releases it right here. That's going to be a brighter area because it's a little bit hotter than the rest of the sun. We said the sun is about 6,000 degrees. Well, not the entire sun at all spots. We've already mentioned sunspots. Sunspots are significantly cooler parts of the sun. This is a little bit, this is similar. These, these parts will be a little bit hotter. The bright parts will be a little hotter than the average temperature of the sun. The cool parts will, the, the dark parts will be a little bit cooler than the rest of the sun. Overall, it averages out to about 6,000 degrees. But if you look at it in more and more detail, there's a lot of structure there. And this is exactly what you would expect with each of these being the top of one of these convection cells. So it's consistent with what we see, even though we can't look down and see all that convection going on. We see the results of it. If we saw a nice smooth surface here, just all one color, all merged together, then that would be evidence against convection because we're not seeing one of the things that it is predicting. So put it together with all of our models, those equations that we solve to look at, to figure out what's going on here. All of that put together really gives us a confidence in what we understand about the sun and what I'm going to show you uh, coming up when we get to the last chapter, of the last section of this chapter. Now, how do we find out what the sun is made up of? We can't go get a sample and bring it back here to the lab to test it, right? That would be, that'd be perfect. Go scoop up a nice chunk of the sun, bring it back here and say, okay, it's got so much hydrogen, so much helium, so much iron. We can't do that. We looked at that nice spectrum of the sun a couple chapters ago. Showed the entire sun, whole entire sun spectrum filled the whole slide. This is a little bit, uh, not quite as high resolution here. But this shows what the spectrum of the sun would look like. And we can see things like iron, hydrogen, calcium. What else do we see? Mercury, sodium, all sorts of different elements, plus all these other lines that are not specifically identified on here. A little bit of everything. In fact, most of the elements can be detected in the, sol in the spectrum of the sun. We have the advantage that the sun is so close to us and so bright that we can spread that light out into great detail and still be able to see something. Try to do that with a faint star and you get, it fades out very quickly if you try to spread it out too much. But we can detect all of this. We again, we know what the sun is made up in the outer layers we can see. That tells us the composition of the outside. Doesn't tell us what it's like inside. We can probably get a pretty good guess that whatever we see on the outside is going to be similar. Why would it be too different on the inside? It's going to be mixed up pretty well. If it's almost all hydrogen, which is what it is, hydrogen lines are here, here, and there's that very strong red one that we've mentioned. There's a lot of hydrogen, hydrogen in the sun. But again, all we're seeing directly is the very outer layers. That tells us what the, what the photosphere is made up of. That's the part we see. And the chromosphere, the layer up above that, the sort of the atmosphere of the sun. We can tell what they're made up of. But we don't know directly what's down, what's down, further down below. But we see everything in there. We see, I don't have them labeled here, I don't have them labeled, but you know, gold, silver, 
You know, sun has those in them. Sun has copper. Sun has you know argon, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon. Everything is there. So every element is there, in at least some at least some amount. Vast majority though is hydrogen and helium. So we can learn what it's made up of. Now. The photosphere is the surface. That's when you go out there and glance at the sun and turn away real quick because it's blazing in your eyes. We see, we can see also see the atmosphere above it sometimes. It's always there. We call that the chromosphere or the sphere of color. That's up above the photosphere. Hard to see because the sun's so bright. The chromosphere is fainter than the rest of the sun. So, if you got the sun out, it washes out the rest of the material, rest of the atmosphere and you can't see it. So, normally you would not be able to see this chromosphere, but a good time you could do that is during an eclipse, during a total solar eclipse, the moon would just block out the photosphere of the sun and you'd be able to see the edge around it. You'd be able to see the chromosphere around it. And that's one way we can study it. We get to see that there's a lot of interesting things going on. We've blocked out, again, the entire surface of the sun. Even a little bit of it will wash out the chromosphere. You don't, you don't need a whole lot of it, just a tiny speck. You've got to cover the entire thing. But once you do, you start to see that there's little bumps here, little bits of material over here, a lot more over here, where something interesting is going on on the sun. It's not just this nice, smooth surface. It has a lot of material and a lot of material that's going, a lot of things that are going on on the surface. And that's what we're going to look at on the coming, in the coming sections, this section and the next one. But we can do that during an eclipse. That was for the longest time, that was really the only way we could do it. Now we have instrumentation where we can kind of make an artificial eclipse and block out the light from the sun and then be able to study the chromosphere without having to wait for an eclipse to occur and then hope that the weather holds up, that it's nice and clear like it is today to be able to actually study the chromosphere. So there are ways that astronomers who study the sun can still do this themselves. If we look again, this is kind of looking at the edge at some of these little storms, you get these uh, what we call spicules up here and these are just some of these little spikes that come up out of the, out of the surface that are material rising from the surface of the sun. So you can see here some very large, larger areas. You can actually get very large things that will become uh, solar flares, actually throwing material off. The spicules are just the very small, the smaller ones. Sort of looks like you know, a field of grass out there almost along the edge. And that's just material rising up off of the surface, actual material rising up. So we do see some, some from the signs of the active sun that's what we're, that's one of the things that we see is what we call these spicules. Now this is an image of the sun that is taken in the ultraviolet. So this is not what you'd see in visible. So it's ultraviolet meaning it's completely false color now, right? Ultraviolet light has no color to us. We can't detect it with our eyes. So here it happens to be colored out in, in orange but this is actually an ultraviolet picture as we can see down there. And this means we're looking up above the surface of the sun. Ultraviolet light, a lot of ultraviolet light is emitted from the chromosphere. Chromosphere is actually a little bit hotter than the surface of the sun. Sun is very interesting. It's 15 million degrees at the center, cools down to about 6,000, even a little bit less as you get just above the surface, then it starts to heat up again. And when you get out to the chromosphere, it'll get up to about 10,000 degrees, a temperature at which a lot of ultraviolet light is emitted. So we're getting more and more energy as we get a little bit further up.
So those are some of the smaller storms. We also see things like flares that are much larger, uh, significantly larger. Now the outer outer atmosphere is the solar corona. If we block out the photosphere and we block out the chromosphere, we block out both of those with an eclipse or with an artificial eclipse, then we begin to see the corona out here. Corona will look different depending on how active the sun happens to be at the time. When the sun is not very active, you get a corona that's just kind of, you know, nice big atmosphere around the sun. When it's as extremely active as it likely was when this image was taken, you get much more structure to it. You get like that section here, you get this section, another little one over there. That's when the sun is much more active, when there's a lot more sunspots on the surface of the sun, a lot more activity going on. But again, the corona, temperatures are getting back up quite high again here. The corona gets up to a million degrees. Not quite as hot as the center of the sun, but much, much hotter than the surface. Emits a lot of x-rays, again, higher, higher temperatures, giving us much more higher energy electromagnetic radiation. And we're looking at the very furthest out atmosphere of the sun, and a lot of this, a lot of the corona and the material from around that is the material that eventually escapes, that gets here to Earth, causes the aurora. So that's actually where material will escape from, not necessarily directly from the surface, in, except in some cases, but will actually escape from the corona as it gets further and further out, further away from the gravitational force, is better able to escape. So if we block out both of them, then we can actually see uh, the corona, but it's very, very faint. Might be hot, but there aren't a lot of power particles up there. Remember the density we told, I told you at the, at the center of the sun is like 150, 160 times that of water? When we get out to here to the corona, yeah, it's very, very hot, but the density would be an amazing vacuum here on Earth. And I don't mean a vacuum to clean the floor, I mean the sucking all the air out of something completely, a better vacuum than we could produce here on Earth. So it's very few particles there, but the ones that are there are moving at incredibly high speeds and have a very high temperature. So that's why it doesn't get very bright. There's just not a lot of material out there as there is further down. I mentioned the temperatures. Here's a graph kind of showing how the temperatures work. This is for the surface of the sun that we see here. If we went down to the interior, it would shoot back up again, reaching 15 million degrees. But it's about 6,000 at the surface we see. It does drop down a little bit as you get further out, but then once you get out into the uh, chromosphere, it starts to shoot back up again and get up towards like 10,000 degrees. And as you go further and further out, the density goes down. There's fewer and fewer particles there, but they're moving faster and faster, and the temperatures shoot up to 100,000, a million degrees, maybe even a couple million degrees as you get out into the corona out here. So you're getting way above the surface, but you're seeing very high temperatures. So how do we get such high temperature? We're way away from the core where all the energy is being produced, right? The energy that can explain how th why things are hot down there. You've got all those nuclear bombs going off, essentially that amount of energy every single second. That makes sense. Is that hot there? That it's millions of degrees. How can we get all this further out? What is heating things up here? Well, there's not as much material to heat up much less material, and you can use what it is here, it's less electromagnetic interactions, it's likely the magnetic field of the sun. So the magnetic field of the sun whips around through the corona as the sun spins around 
once every 25-ish days at the, at the center. And as that magnetic field whips around, it accelerates these particles out in the corona. So it moves them faster and faster. That's all the temperature is. Temperature is how fast particles are moving. So these particles are moving incredibly fast when you get out here and still pretty fast compared to anything we're used to here on Earth, even at the surface. But if you're going 6,000 versus a couple million, big, big difference in how fast those particles are moving. So there's some sort of magnetic activity that is going on and that's going to kind of lead us into our next section talking about, really talking about the magnetic activity of the sun. But that's probably what's heating up, actually heating up the corona. Now, we mentioned sunspots earlier. Sunspots are nice dark spots on the surface of the sun. We've seen them, well we say Galileo discovered them. There's actually uh, reports that sunspots were detected before Galileo. Not with a telescope, but there are some sunspots that are large enough to be seen with the naked eye. Now, you're not going to sit there and stare at the sun. It's up high in the sky. You're not going to be able to see that sunspot. But when the sun is just rising, it's going through all that. You can sit there and look at this. You watch the sunrise. You watch the sunset. You can sit there and look at the sun then. It's going through so much atmosphere. All the light's been, you know, light's been dimmed significantly. It doesn't hurt to look at it. So you can actually look at it there and there are sunspots that are large enough when there's a big one there you can actually see that with your naked eye. But still we usually give credit we started actually monitoring them when Galileo was able to look at the sun and find these splotches on it. But there was evidence that these have been seen you know even you know thousands, thousand years before Galileo or maybe even more. They're dark patches on the surface of the sun and that's because they're a little bit cooler than the rest of the sun. That doesn't mean they're cold, so you're not going to be able to go land down there or anything. It's not a solid, it's not a little island on the sun. It really is just an incredibly hot part of the sun, but instead of being 6,000 degrees, maybe it's four to 5,000 degrees. Still hot enough to melt anything we've got to send there, but when you look at something that's 4,000 degrees plastered against something that's much hotter, it's going to look dark. If you could scoop out that material, so we can't get, we already said, we can't get our sample of the sun, but if we could somehow you know, remove that sunspot and just set it out in space, it would be several thousand degrees. It would look like a nice orange glow in the sky. It would be very bright orange. It wouldn't be as bright as the rest of the sun, but it would still be incredibly hot. And it would still glow by itself. It just looks dark by comparison. So when we look at them uh, in terms of size, how big these things are, this one is noted to be about the size of the Earth. So that's an Earth-sized sunspot. There's the granulation that we looked at previously. But these things are, are very large. If they were just tiny little dots, you know, we'd never be able to see them. You would not be able to see them. These things are big. Many of them are the size of the Earth or even a couple Earths, a couple times the size of the Earth across the, across the surface of the sun. So they only look dark because they're a little bit cooler. They are not very, they're not cold areas. They're just cooler than the rest of the surface of the sun. Yes, sir. Any idea why the sun spots are created? Yep, we're, co we're, we're coming to it. Okay. So yeah. But that's, you know, why, do, why do we have these cooler spots on the surface of the sun? That's a very good question. You know, why, do they, why do they occur? And it's going to come back to the magnetic fields that I mentioned with the corona. And we're going to look at that in a little bit more detail here coming up. In fact, here we are. When we look at sunspots, they're not there all the time. Sometimes we see lots of sunspots, sometimes we see very few. 
The sunspots that do form come and go. So you don't watch a sunspot, not like the great red spot that we watched for hundreds of years around Jupiter. You might watch a sunspot and it might be there. Sun takes about a month to spin around once. So as we're here, we're watching this sunspot as it goes around, it disappears off one edge. You know, maybe we'll see it come back. Maybe it'll be gone by the time it comes back. They only la they last a few weeks to a couple months sometimes, depending on the actual sunspot. So sometimes we can see it come back around again. Sometimes, you know, it's gone and we don't see it again. Sometimes the sunspot starts coming here and they just slowly fade off. You know, like a storm here on Earth, you know, get a big hurricane. Eventually, it just dies down to, you know, a regular storm to just a big rainstorm to essentially nothing. The sunspots do the same kind of thing. They eventually will fade out. So few days for some little ones, they can actually last, last even a month. Some of them can make it around you know, a full rotation of the sun. They form in pairs. Every sunspot that you see actually has two. So there's, a, there's two that are linked together. There's a north spot and a south spot. Doesn't mean which one's towards the north or towards the south. It's a magnetic north. So a north magnetic pole and a south magnetic pole of the sunspot. And the magnetic field lines are coming here out of the South Pole and into the North Pole. How can we see that? We can't see magnetic field lines, right? The magnetic field lines of the Earth are passing through us right now. Uh, perhaps, you know, in high school, middle school, you did the experiment with a bar magnet and some iron. Right? You put on a piece of paper and it forms the pattern of the magnetic field lines. It actually highlights the magnetic field. If you've ever done that, you know, you saw the magnetic field of the bar magnet but you couldn't see it directly. It was always there. It didn't just appear because you put the little iron particles on it. It was there. Well, when we look at the sun, here's what we predict, that there's magnetic field lines coming out of one spot and going back into the other. And what we see, we can't see the magnetic field lines. But we can see the particles of the sun. We can actually detect particles from the sun that flow along those magnetic field lines. Charged particles will move along the magnetic field and highlight it. So they'll show up where those particles are. So much as the iron filings line up right along those magnetic field lines, so do the particles of the sun. So we can actually detect things like this where we can see the magnetic field has kind of popped out of the sun. Yes, ma'am? It could be in some of them. That could be where the magnetic field is coming out. Uh, it's even more related to things like solar flares. Would be something where this magnetic field comes out and it pushes material from the sun out. It lifts it up. And if it pops out slowly, it kind of lifts it up and falls back down. If it pops up real hard, it throws that material out into space. So that, if this came up very slowly, it might raise that material that was on the surface up and it would kind of rain back down to the sun. If it came up real hard, it would actually throw that material and expel it out into space. So that's pretty good considering, you know, how easy it is to launch a rocket here on Earth, right? It's no big deal to send a rocket up. Yeah, it takes a lot of energy to get that rocket up into space. These have that much energy that they can fling particles off the sun in a much stronger gravitational field. So it's a lot of energy when those particles are coming, are coming here. So yeah, it is magnetic field. It is magnetic field lines that we that are causing the sunspots, and we have some evidence of that, uh, like the way they pair up. There's always a north and a south pair, and that we can see a connection between them when we look at them in detail here, looking along the edge of the sun. We can see we know where the sunspots are. We've been watching them, and we can see the material flowing sort of between the two. Yes. Uh, 
Uh, solar flares are that powerful. Couldn't they have been what created some of the moons that are in our galaxy? Uh, not really creating any moons. They're, not, they're that powerful instead of throwing little bits of material up. They're not going to throw up enough material that's going to create, that's going to be able to create anything like that. They're just going to expel material out into space. But they are extremely powerful and they do, they can affect us here on Earth. Right? You hear the solar flare, you can get you know, radio communications problems because the solar flares interfere with all of the satellites and, and, and everything. So they can actually affect us here on Earth. Now, if you've ever seen, the mag- if you've seen pictures of the magnetic field of the Earth, it looks something like this. You've got the north magnetic pole and the south magnetic pole, and you've got all the magnetic field lines coming in and out. And you may have seen something similar to that for the Earth. The sun is actually is relatively similar. You see a little bit of it zoomed up there on the left-hand side image. So the sun starts out like that, similar to the Earth. The Earth rotates like a solid body, right? Takes 24 hours to rotate here, takes 24 hours to rotate here. So the whole magnetic field rotates along with the Earth. So the Earth stay, Earth's magnetic field stays the same. On the sun, if you recall, it takes about 25 days to rotate once at the equator. It takes like 36 days to rotate at the poles. So it's yeah, it's a big, it's a ball of gas, so it does not, we're not going to rotate exactly at the same speed. It rotates much faster here, and that means eventually, if you're rotating every 25 days here, say, that after three rotations of the equator, it's about 75 days, is pretty close to two rotations of the pole, 72 days, 36 twice. So eventually the equator keeps lapping the pole, and you twist up all those magnetic field lines. So whereas the Earth, it rotates as a solid, everything rotates together, and the magnetic field stays essentially the same. On the Sun, you have this part rotating much faster that after a couple of rotations, you have this one, the magnetic field lines near the equator have been stretched around many, many times, and they start to get tangled up. It distorts the magnetic field, and eventually you get little parts You know, you twist the rubber band, eventually it starts to break and pop and all sorts of things happen if you twist it up enough. And those little parts that pop out eventually form the sunspots. Cools off as the magnetic field lines come out there, they cool off that surface. Okay, the magnetic field lines cool it off a little bit, at least on the photosphere. And eventually they'll twist back up or they'll rechange or something else will change. I mean, it's not quite as simple as I've given you here, but it will it will mess up the magnetic field of the Sun. What we see is we see things like prominences and flares towards the edge of the Sun when we can actually see it against space. We actually see that little loop of material. That's what I showed you in the previous image where we could actually see that little bit of material uh, coming off the surface of the Sun. But it's the magnetic field that's getting all twisted and tangled up because the Sun is a big ball of gas. It rotates differently at the equator than it does at the pole. Actually, so does Jupiter, Saturn, do the same kind of thing. Anything that's a gas doesn't rotate as a big solid ball. Now everything's not, everything's not connected together, so the things at the middle will spin a lot, will spin significantly faster. Um, now when we look at the sunspots, we see that there's a cycle to them. There's a pattern to how many we get at a time. So let's look at the bottom down here. And we see that we're com- we were coming up towards a peak. We actually had kind of a little peak the last uh, year or so. 
And we're probably getting over that and actually heading back down. But all this is is counting how many sunspots we see. So astronomers monitor the sun, how many sunspots are there each month. They average that together and get an average of it. And you can see that there's a peak here. Let's start here. You had a peak right around 2001. You had a peak right here around 1990 or so. You had a peak here in the 1980s. Roughly every 11 years we get a peak. It's not precise. You know, this one was actually a little bit late because you had a peak here around 2001. We didn't peak again until 2013, early 2014. So sometimes it's a little bit longer. Again, that magnetic field twisting up does not give you anything that you can easily predict. You know, the Earth rotates once every day. We can predict that. It's nice and regular. The sun is really mixed up and that sometimes it'll go a little closer. You know, here was 1980, 1981 or so. This looks like it's maybe 1990, 1991. Maybe that was only 9 or 10 years. Whereas this one was 11 or 12. Averaged out over a long period of time, you can see that there's still at least a regular pattern. You get a peak, about 10 to 11 years later, another one, another one here, 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 and so on all the way back. As far as we've been able to observe. The amount of sunspots we get are different. We get some, some peaks that are very big. Back here in the 50s and 60s we had some pretty big ones. 1970s was kind of uh, much less. Here back in 80 and 90 we had a rather big ones again. Uh, the last one was relatively minor. Again, we can't predict that. There's no pattern even looking over a couple hundred years worth of this. We don't see any pattern to say, oh, this next one's going to be a monster sunspot cycle or this one's going to be a very minor sunspot cycle. We have no way to be able to, to tell that. But I'm going to come back here. I'm going to finish this up because I've got a few more things to say about sunspots. And then on Wednesday we'll finish up sunspots and talking about the activity there. And then go on and, you know, what causes all of this really deep down in the core and look at the... Uh, look at the nuclear energy generation. So homework three due today. If you want to submit that online by six o'clock tomorrow morning, and I hopefully I'll have all the labs and your homework back for you if either Wednesday or Friday if I give them back during during lab. But I do have the homework grades are up there now. So don't forget the homework. And if you want the quiz to redo, I do need an email from you to reset that.